Well, good evening. Good to have you here. It's good to gather once again and to be encouraging one another in the worship of our God and in his word. Um, we got some great things to read about and talk about tonight in Genesis 15 as we dive into the old covenant, the shadow, the shadow of the better things. We really see the establishment, the official establishment of the Abrahamic covenant uh, as it's referred to. And going to see God uh, really just encouraging and instructing Abraham in this chapter. There's some great stuff for us to uh, take home and learn from. And it's, uh, once again, God's word never fails to just amaze us as how it's put, it, put together, how it's compiled, how it all fits so perfectly, as we've seen so far already. And so, uh, if you'll join me in Genesis chapter fe- uh, 15, as we read through, and just get an overview of this chapter before we dig in. It says, And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And then he said to him, I am the Lord, who brought you out of Ur, the Chaldeans, to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And so he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all of these to him, and he cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And now the sun was going down, and a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years, and also the nation who they serve I will judge. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. And on the same day that the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of, <coughs> excuse me, of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabmanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, and all the termites and the rest of the ites. <laughs> so, we're really getting the actual official introduction to God's covenant, the old covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. So let's dive in, starting back at verse 1, and kind of unpack this chapter as we see all that, that God is saying here. So first of all, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, 
saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And that's the uh, New American Standard Version, or as it says in the uh, New King James, um, I am a shield to you and your very great reward. So first of all, he starts off with after these things. If you remember, last week we talked about how Abram had to go rescue Lot. Remember all the wars that were going on between the plethora of people in that land, and we had a pretty exhaustive vocabulary lesson, and, uh, and, uh, and pronouncing all those kings and all those peoples that came together, and it was five kings against four kings in their lands, and they all went to battle, and Abraham, Abraham ended up having to go and rescue Lot because he was captured, and then so he went and rescued all the people of Sodom, brought them back, and then remember we were introduced to uh, Melchizedek, the king and the priest, and seeing what he was a picture of, and so we're just finishing up, coming out of that, so Abraham's just had to uh, rescue Lot. He's going through uh, some, just some turmoil, some crazy things happening, and he's seeing all this stuff going on. Time is going by, and clearly he's be- probably beginning to wonder, you know, what about this promise? Here I am in the promised land. Here I am in the place God told me to go, and now what? Uh, what am I supposed to do? And so after all of these events have taken place, the Lord is coming to Abram to reaffirm his promises and to take it one step further, to make a covenant with him. And so he tells him, do not fear. I am a shield to you, and your reward will be great. So God promises to be his defense, and that his faith and his perseverance is going to be a great reward. Um, There's a passage in 2 Samuel 22 I want to read you. It says, and the source passage actually also is in Psalm 18 we see, uh, where he says, he trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your help makes me great. And remember in the previous chapter that Abram acknowledged God as being his source of help. He acknowledged God as being his provider and the one who would make him great, the one who would be his total provision. And God is reaffirming that. He's saying that he's going to be his shield. 1 Corinthians 6, 7 says, now therefore, I, I want to, I want to, actually before I read that passage, I want to uh, encourage you in this because This, I think, illustrates an important point for us as Christians today. Um, Abram uh, affirmed this in the previous chapter. God's reaffirming it in this chapter how God is his his shield, his provider. You know, and I think sometimes, uh, you know, I thought about this in my own life, how sometimes we can get so caught up in defending ourselves. Anybody ever been there? Where you feel like you've got to come to your own rescue. You've got to defend your position. You've got to defend yourself. uh, You've got to state your case You've got to prove your point. And Abram understood, and God is reminding Abram to continue to walk in that knowledge that he would be his shield, that he would be the one to protect him. And we're given some encouragement throughout Scripture to remember that and to hold fast to it. And that should have a very practical expression in our dealings with one another and in our dealings with the world. If we truly say that we trust God as our shield, he's our defense, that, that uh, he is the one who will render judgment one day. That should play out in our lives in a certain way. And I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians some instruction uh, to us in this matter. It says, now therefore, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 7. It says, now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law one against another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? In other words, you're ruining your witness. You're tearing apart the body of Christ 
And, he's, and he goes on to talk about, don't, don't you have the wisdom of God? Don't you know that you're gonna one day rule and reign with Christ and here you are bickering and then going to the world for answers and for justice? How absurd is that? Don't you know that God is your shield? Don't you know that he is the one who will make it all right one day? And if we believe that, that should affect how we deal with one another, certainly, but also how we deal with the world. And sometimes there comes a place where we have to allow ourselves to be hurt or to be cheated. Isn't that, isn't that true? I mean, you know, our job isn't to win the argument. Our job is to help win souls, which means we don't always have to be right. Sometimes we have to let it go. Sometimes, as it says here, why not rather just be cheated? Let yourself be wronged for his sake, for the sake of the gospel and as a sign of faith. And as God shows us here, this is a symbol of faith for Abram to trust that he would be his shield. He's not always going to have to deliver himself, make his own way, or fulfill God's promise for him. God would be the one to do it. And that trust plays out in his life very practically. So we're going to look at two main points here of what God is telling Abram in this. First of all, you're not on your own. Psalm 34:19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And I love that verse, and I love what this is saying to us. You know, we go through tough things. I don't think anyone in here is a stranger to suffering or a stranger to adversity or challenges, and it helps so much to remember we're not alone in them. And like it says here, that the many are the afflictions of the righteous. So in other words, being righteous doesn't necessarily deliver you from this world's hurt. And just as Abram, just as Abram needed this reminder, needed this encouragement, because he was going to have adversity and challenges in walking in the promises of God, we need that reminder that we're going to have adversities and afflictions, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The Lord is the deliverer. You know, and I think that we can take it a step further to remind us that God is with us in all things. And when God has promised us something, and God has given us exceedingly great and precious promises, hasn't he? But, you know, has God ever also maybe spoken something to you specifically? I know to me, there's been cases in my life where God has given me a vision for something or felt like he called me to something specifically or he's given me a heart for someone, some, someone or something. Um, I'm sure many of you have experienced that. And sometimes a lot of time can go by before that's fulfilled, just like in Abraham's case here. Um, sometimes God doesn't always do it right away, or what you feel like God is leading you to, and then suddenly it doesn't happen, and all these things kind of, all these circumstances take place, and it seems like it's not going to be fulfilled. And we can get all caught up in trying to fulfill it ourselves. As we read in this passage, it talks about how Abram, Abram says he has this servant son that was born into his house who he had already pretty much planned on being his heir. He's kind of set him up and this guy's going to be my heir. And he's already taking steps to, um, I guess, help God's promises along. Uh, to go, okay, well, I've, I've got this heir set up. I've got someone that the promise could be fulfilled through, even though it's not truly my son. He was taking those steps. He's trying to take the burden upon himself to fulfill those things and to walk in God's promises. But Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus exhorts us and says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's the one that carries it. So God is encouraging Abram, and he's also commending him for his conduct. He's calming his fears. <clears throat> and you know, God didn't provide Abram with a lot of details. You know, 
uh, you see that all this time is going by. We see these chunks of time, and we're going to ultimately find out that it's going to be from the time of the promise to the time of fulfillment about 25 years before Abram actually has his own heir for his bloodline and the promise to be passed through. And all throughout that time frame, we don't see God really giving Abram step-by-step instructions of what to do with himself every day. Now, I don't know about you, but God didn't tell me what shirt to put on this morning. He didn't tell me, uh, you know, lay out the plan for the day, or he doesn't necessarily tell me what I'm going to do this week or next week. God has given us certain choices, hasn't he? He's given us certain latitude to conduct our lives and carry out our lives in a certain direction based in the framework of his purposes and desires for us. Right? We have his established word. And sometimes he tells us, you know, I have a calling on your life to maybe serve me in this way as a missionary or to serve me in being a mechanic or to do whatever it may be. And we don't always see it fulfilled immediately or not in the way we expect. And God doesn't give us any further instruction, just like Abram. But what are we supposed to do in those scenarios? How do we hear from God? How do we know what's next? And Abram gives us an example, and God uses Abram as an example for us, that we are supposed to carry on. We're supposed to take step forward and move in a direction based on what we know of God, what he's told us, make plans, make preparations. Honestly, I can't fault Abram here for choosing someone in his household to be his heir. In some sense, he's going, okay, well, until God actually gives me a physical heir, I'll just you know, pick somebody and at least sort of, sort of make a plan. Uh, and, and I really can't fault him in some ways for that, that he's, at least he's moving on. He's, he's not just sitting around in his tent waiting for God to do something miraculous, right? God wants us to move. He wants us to take action. And to me, that's the essence of Proverbs uh, 3, 5 through 10. We all know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. You guys know this one? In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will what? Direct your paths. But if we read on, it also says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. So we have some established principles of God that we can operate by, don't we? We have some established instruction that God's given us on how to live. Honor the Lord, verse 9, from all your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. And so we see that we're given this instruction that not so, God isn't necessarily going to give us every step or what to do with every moment of every day, but he is going to give us milestones as he gave to Abram. He's going to give us certain markers and indicators and he's going to give, make it clear to us if we seek him you know, what our giftings are, what our callings are, what, what he's built into us. And we can overcomplicate it, can't we? We can, we can totally nuke the thing and try and figure out every minute detail and, and, and just get so obsessed with hearing such detailed instruction from God. Rarely do we see God work that way. R- many times God just says, obey what I've already said and I'll guide you. As it says here, acknowledge him in all you do and he'll direct your paths. In other words, as you go about your daily life, as you live your life, are you acknowledging him in it? Are you making him a part of your day? Are you praising him for the things that, and giving him credit for the things he's done? Is he your first resort when trouble comes? That's what that means. So that's number one. God is with us in it. God is with Abram in this journey. God is his shield. He's going to carry him through. He's going to deliver him to those places of promise. But number two, he says when, we, when he persevere in seeking and trusting in God's plan and his purpose in your life, there is great reward. So God is promising him reward. This word reward means payment of a contract or salary. It means wages. 
or, or reward or worth. And so there's sort of an indication of here is the result of his faith, the result of his trust in God uh, results in a reward, that there's going to be a reward. And we see this as a common theme throughout Scripture. Hebrews 10.35 says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And that's what Abram is in essence being said here. Carry on with confidence. <clears throat> Trust in me. I'm your shield. There will be great reward. Um, Psalm 19, Julie read through tonight, talking about the precepts and the judgments and the statutes of God. And what did it end with? In keeping them, there is what? Great reward. We see also in the first three chapters of Revelation, uh, we're told that we see in the letter to the churches over and over again, we see that with certain action, with faithfulness, with good stewardship, with perseverance comes Rewards. So throughout scripture, we see that God has rewards in store for his people, for those who trust in his promises, for those who persevere. We see that throughout scripture, and the same applies for us. We're to build up heavenly rewards. We're to look to a heavenly kingdom, not to just earthly things. A few other verses for you, just some things to think on. Psalm 119, verse 165 says, Those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. So we see a reward is great peace. Jesus said he came to come that we might have peace. Uh, so we, great peace is a result of loving God's law. It's a reward. Proverbs is overflowing, and we would run out of time to talk about all the rewards for seeking wisdom and the fear of the Lord. Luke chapter 6 talks about rejoicing when we're persecuted because great will be our reward in heaven. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about rewards for being faithful to preach the gospel to be a planter or a waterer. And so we see over and over again and then all the way at the very last chapter of the Bible in Revelation 22, verse 12, it says, Behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. So it's okay to be motivated by reward. It's okay to know that God has good things in store for those who are faithful, those who serve him and seek heavenly rewards. God is going to reward that. You can count on it. And... and Abram is being encouraged by God here in this very thing. He said, your faithfulness, your faith in me, your trust in me will be rewarded. And most importantly, you're going to see here, as, as we read in the King James Version or the New King James Version, I love the way this is worded. It says, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. In other words, indicating God himself is the greatest reward of all. Christ, our inheritance, that is the greatest reward, amen? That's really what we're looking to. It's not the crowns, it's eternal life, it's our fellowship with Christ, it's he himself. That is the essence of the greatest reward. Philippians 3, verse 8 says, Yet indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, whom I have suffered many things, the loss of all things, and I count them rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Christ is that greatest reward that we have to look forward to. So we're going to get a little insight into Abram's struggle as we read on in Genesis 15, picking up verse 2. It says, Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram, Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. 
the one born in my house, meaning a servant. Someone in, in his house meant, uh, you know, he had uh, hundreds of servants. He had all these people that were in his house. His house kind of speaks of all of his possessions, uh, basically his uh, property. And so he has this servant that's born into his house, and he had already kind of designated him as this heir. He'd, it almost indicates he had already taken steps to set it up and to plan for him being the heir. That was kind of his best human solution he could come up with. You know, and sometimes I think we can fall into the same mode as Abram. We see that Abram here was ready to settle, wasn't he? He was kind of ready to settle for, for uh, you know, what he could pull off. He said, okay, it's not looking like I'm going to have any kids. Sarah is not doing so good. We're all getting older. We ain't getting any younger here. So I better make some plans. I better set something up. I'm just going to kind of settle for a servant. That's just going to have to be good enough. And we're going to see later on in Genesis, they kind of try and settle again. And it's Sarai's idea this time uh, to kind of push God's plan along. But here we see indicated already, Abram's kind of ready to settle. And we do that sometimes. We, we in our impatience or in wanting to push our own plan forward, we, we're willing to settle for what our best efforts result in. How sad is that? How we miss out. And if, and if Abram had been allowed to settle for his plan, how big would have he, would have he missed out? And, and I just can't imagine what, what God, would have, God would have had to do something else. Obviously, God's word is faithful and God does fulfill what he promises. And it's a good thing it's not dependent on any human. Amen? So Joshua 21, verse 43 says, So the Lord gave to Israel all the land which he had sworn to give their fathers. So he's, I'm just giving you a quick fast forward to the future. And we see that indeed this promise was fulfilled. It says the Lord gave to Israel all that he had sworn to give their fathers and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. And the Lord gave them rest all around according to all he had sworn to their fathers. Not a man of all their enemies stood against them for the Lord delivered them, delivered all <coughs> their enemies into their hand. So the Lord was their shield, was he not? Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel, all came to pass. That's Joshua 21, verse 43 through 45. So we kind of get a quick fast forward and, and just to give you a glimpse into the promises of God, God did fulfill everything. And obviously we'll study that a little later on, but he fulfilled everything that he said he would do. So let's read on. God goes on to affirm and clarify his promise, picking up in verse 4. It says, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir. So he's speaking of that servant, the servant boy that he had picked out. He said, No, this one's not going to be your heir. But one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside, and he said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. If you remember back in Genesis 13, uh, God used the sand as an illustration. He said, look at the sand. As many as there is sand, so will your descendants be. So he used something innumerable then, and he's using again something innumerable now. In, Genesis, or in Deuteronomy 10.22, it says, your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now the Lord has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So again, we see that promise fulfilled, and it's mentioned in De- Deuteronomy uh, chapter 10. And it's interesting to note, with the naked eye nowadays, I'm sure there was less pollution back in Abram's day, but if you were to look up at the sky, uh, it's estimated that in, in most places, without light pollution, you can only see about 2,000 stars with your, with your naked eye. If you have a good set of binoculars, you can see about 200,000. If you have a decent small telescope, 
that number jumps to about 15 million. But astronomers today estimate that our galaxy, just our galaxy, contains about 400 billion stars. Just our galaxy. And now, looking out deep into space, we know that there are singular spiral galaxies that have over 100 trillion stars. Just one galaxy. And it's estimated that there's over 160 billion galaxies just in the, what we can observe, what the farthest we can see. Over 160 billion galaxies, some of them containing over 100 trillion stars in them. Just, just mind-blowing. Clearly, the point is, is that his promises are great and beyond our comprehension, that he will fulfill it. And his descendants will be innumerable. Again, this is, to me, a reference not just to his bloodline, his physical bloodline, but his spiritual descendants, his descendants of faith. Us, you and me, and everyone throughout history who has named the name of Christ, let alone Jew or Greek, uh, Gentile uh, and Jew alike. We are descendants of Abram by faith. Jeremiah 33, 19 says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time. If you remember back in Genesis 8, uh, we read that after the flood, uh, God says that while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer, winter, day and night will not cease. So in other words, God is saying, if you can get me to break my covenant with the daytime and the cycles and all the systems I've set up, he says there in Jeremiah 33, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. So God reiterates there that there's gonna be this innumerable multitude. And again, it's clearly a reference not to the physical bloodline, but to all those who will receive Christ, who will receive really that spiritual blessing through faith in Christ, just as Abram's faith is what saved him, so our faith saves us. And that covenant, he makes clear, cannot be broken because it's dependent on him. More on that a little later. So Abram's faith is built up and restored as as God reiterates his promises and clarifies his promises. Picking up in verse 6 of chapter 15, it says, Then he believed the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, this passage is quoted many times uh, throughout the New Testament, uh, and it's reiterated and clarified for us what this really means and the depth of this meaning. Um, and it says, it goes on in verse 7, it says, He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and I will give you this land to possess, to possess it. And so we see throughout the New Testament, and I'm not going to get into all the verses. We're going to look at some a little bit later. <clears throat> But several times we see in Romans and Corinthians and Hebrews where these verses are quoted and it talks about how the basis of, of, Abraham, of Abram being used by God and the relationship there was his faith. And it's no different than how we're saved today, how we're redeemed today through the blood of Christ. It's by faith. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about that later on. But we're gonna touch on uh, Hebrews 11, verse nine, where it says, by faith... Abram dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. In other words, not something he would build himself, but something God would set up. And you know, Abram never saw it, did he? 
He didn't get to see the nations that would come from him. He didn't get to see all that God would do. He didn't get to see the 400 years after Egypt when they would go and actually claim the land. He didn't see that, did he? But he died, he went to his grave still believing in the promises of God that those things would, in fact, happen. And that God would be the builder and maker of it. It wouldn't be something he would have to make happen. You know, it's interesting when we look at Abram's life and we see how these promises really were intended for future generations, weren't they? They were ultimately going to be fulfilled and seen uh, by those far long after him. And I think that God, again, in some ways deals with us in the same way. God doesn't always deal with us uh, just for our sakes. He doesn't always use us in ways that is just simply for us. Matter of fact, very rarely does he do that. Many times God seeks to use us and speak to us or through us for the sake of someone else. It's for the betterment of the body of Christ or to be used to share the gospel. It's not for us. And we see the promises to Abram weren't really for him, were they? They were for future generations. They're for all of us, these promises. God just used him as that instrument uh, through which those promises would be fulfilled. But they weren't really for him. And you know what? They weren't in Abram's way and they weren't in Abram's time. Two things that we struggle with. We like to see things done our way and in our time frame. Uh, but that isn't how God works, I've come to find out. Anybody else find that out? My schedule's not really his <laughs> at all. Uh, not at all. I seem to think I have a pretty good idea of when things should happen. God usually doesn't agree. And, you know, quite thankfully that he doesn't because his ways are better than our ways. And his ways are past finding out. Sometimes we'll never know. And that's the thing we really wrestle with. It's not the things that eventually we find out that I'm so glad God didn't give me what I asked for when I wanted it. But sometimes there's things that we'll never find out in our lifetime. We'll never get the answer for it. And can we be okay with that? Can we have the faith like Abram did to trust in things we would not see, things we will not see in this life? There are going to be things like that. You may have things like that you're wrestling with now. Will you trust God like Abram did for things he would not see? He would never see in, this, in his lifetime. We have that same challenge of faith today, don't we? There's certain things we don't know the answer to and we can't seem to figure out or we wrestle with them and go, why God would this happen? Why would you allow this? How come this isn't working? How come I try this and this isn't happening? Or I, I thought for sure you told me you were gonna do this and I don't see it. And you know what? We may never see it this side of eternity. But can we be okay with that? Can we trust God that much? That's what the kind of faith God is asking for. And that's the faith he's deserving of because he's never, ever throughout history let anyone down who put their faith in him. Amen? So let's look at the details, the details of the covenants. We're gonna see now all the gory details of the covenant that God is putting together here with Abram. Picking up in chapter 15, verse eight. And it says, he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it, the land? <coughs> Excuse me. And in verse 9 he says, So God said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then he brought all of these to him, and he cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. So at first glance, this looks pretty gruesome, doesn't it? I mean, can you imagine if you saw a scene like this today? Uh, that would be pretty shocking. Uh, it would be quite shocking. Go, whoa, what is going on here? 
If you're wandering through the woods and you came across a scene like that, you'd probably call the police, right? It's kind of, it kind of sounds kind of scary. But the reality is in Abram's time, this would not have been all that shocking. Uh, the arrangement of the divided animal carcasses would have been instantly recognized as a type of blood covenant. Uh, the, a blood covenant was typically done in this way. It was basically, in essence, saying, listen, God do so to me if I ever break this. May I be end up like these animals, is, is kind of what you're saying here. In, um, in the Eastern royal land, uh, typically land-grant treaties and things were sometimes done this way. A ritual like this, very similar to this, was done in that day and time. But God in this covenant, the main thing we want to focus on and look at here is God is, is confirming three primary promises. The promise of heir, an, an heir that would come through him, a great nation. The promise of land. And the promise of blessings, great blessings that would come. As we see in Genesis chapter 12. Excuse me. So a, a blood covenant communicates... a. Uh, unbreakable commitment. And the parties involved would basically walk through the path of these, these divided animals in order to enter into that covenant. Uh, Jeremiah 34, 18 through 19, speaks about this type of covenant and the consequences of breaking it. But let's read on a little bit, and then we're going to dive a little deeper. <clears throat> and it says, Now the sun was going down, and a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and after the, afterward they will come out and with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you'll be buried at a good old age. And so we know this to be true, don't we? We, see, we can read ahead, we can skip ahead down in Genesis and Exodus, we can see the very things God is saying. God's giving Abram a little more detail. Going to, there's going to be more to this picture, this story. It's not just going to be all easy and nice. Your, your descendants are going to have this period of bondage 400 years. That's a long time. That's a long time. Our country hasn't even existed that long. 400 years in bondage. That would be the process of time and that God would be raising up and building this people, this nation. And that they would be enslaved. <coughs> that they would have to serve a nation. But then it says they would come out with many possessions. Remember, if we read in, in Genesis and in Exodus about their departing, what did Pharaoh do when he was so fed up with all the plagues and the judgment that God had rendered on him? He sends him out with all kinds of wealth and he says, take it all, just go. Remember that? Uh, they were sent out with great possessions. God's promises were fulfilled to a T in every detail. And Abram would live to a good old age and die in peace. And it says, Then the fourth generation will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So in other words, the people here in this land are going to get worse. They're going to get more evil, more rebellious. And then basically my judgment through my people will come after all of this time. Finally, over 400 years later, this land that you're scoping out now will finally be possessed by your heirs, by your, the nation that will come from you. Way, way down the road. It's hard to imagine what, if, if God gave us a promise right now and told us that it wouldn't be fulfilled for 400 years, can you imagine thinking about that? I mean, that's pretty hard to fathom. That's a, that's a long time away. A long time away. To realize that God would, would stretch out that far and promise something. And even farther, because many of these promises also translate to what ultimately would be fulfilled in Christ. Even farther, even much later. So it says, 
uh, they will return. In verse 17, And it came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. Interesting. So ultimately we see that God is entering into this covenant, this, this unbreakable commitment or promise with Abram and with, not just with Abram, but with Abram's descendants, that he would fulfill what he promised. And it says that we see this picture after Abram had fallen asleep and he's afraid and this darkness has fallen and God gives him a glimpse into the future of what's going to happen. We see now this this smoking oven and this flaming torch. Uh, other, other also translated a furnace and a lamp. Um, and it's an interesting picture. It's a really interesting picture. It seems kind of odd. But this furnace, the smoking oven, uh, is I think a pretty cool picture of our God. Because isn't he a consuming fire? Isn't he referred to as that all-consuming fire? We know in Exodus when, when the Israelites see God's glory descend upon the mountain, and it, it's their perception that there's this is consuming fire upon the mountain. In Deuteronomy 9, it says, Hear, O Israel, you are crossing over the Jordan today. So here we are in Deuteronomy. They're about to go and take the land. And it says, Today to go in to dispossess the nations greater and mightier than you. Great cities fortified to heaven, and great people that are tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know, and of whom you've heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them, he will subdue them before you, so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly, just as the Lord has spoken to you. Our God is a consuming fire. And we see that picture of this covenant being entered into by the consuming fire himself as this furnace, this smoking furnace is passing through these, these bodies of these animals. And then we see the flaming torch, otherwise translated a lamp or a light. And it's used, the same word is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to something used to give light or light the way, uh, a torch or a lamp. And again, is, is our God not the one who is the light of the world. Isn't he the one who speaks of his word, who Jesus being the word uh, is the lamp to our feet and a light to our path. He's also that light that we read about in Galatians and in Ephesians that exposes darkness and exposes things for what they truly are. The light that the darkness flees from but that the sons of light would embrace. He is the light of the world. So we see this picture of our God, the... the uh, the manifester of truth, the examiner, the judge of all things, and, and he's the one who ultimately determines what is dross and what is good. He consumes everything so the only thing left is the things of truth and things of worth. Is his consuming fire, this flaming torch we see passing through uh, and entering into this covenant. And it says in verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Cadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. So notice uh, the important thing to see here is we see no mention of Abram getting up and going through the, the animals uh, as well. He doesn't go through. Only God passes through. That should tell us something about who the covenant is really dependent upon. And we see that there's another covenant in a sec we'll talk about, but notice that the Lord passed through it and he alone. The covenant was sealed by God. 
Everything depended really on God fulfilling his promise. And it's always the case, isn't it? You can't trust us to fulfill it. That's been proven. In Hebrews chapter 6, it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, he could swear by no one greater, so he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he patiently endured, he obtained the promise. I don't know if you've ever made a promise you can't keep. I know I have. Made those, made those promises that I couldn't keep or wished I could or whatever it may be. But we all fall short, don't we? We, we, we think we can do something or accomplish something. Uh, I know I've told my kids I would do something and I haven't done it, you know, like finish the tree port by a certain time or who knows what it is. But we, as people, we fail. We fall short. And it's such a good thing that God's promises aren't dependent on us performing something. Uh, I am so encouraged by that. And so here we see a picture of the, what's called the Abrahamic covenant, the blood covenant made with Abraham and the promises that would be fulfilled through his heir and the land that they would receive and the blessings that would come from that. Later on, uh, farther on uh, down the road, we're going to see uh, in you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy more and more about the law and the Mosaic covenant, the one through Moses. And that one has a lot more stipulations, a lot more if you do this, I will do this. And really that law is what exposed the need for Christ. That law was the law that really, uh, that covenant was the one that really kind of was the foreshadow. And this also being a foreshadow of what would come. The ultimate fulfillment being in Christ. And I want to wrap up with Hebrews chapter 9 if you want to join me there. So picking up in verse 18. Because we look at this covenant, we look at the Mosaic covenant, we look at all these things and we go, why this gruesome picture? Why these animals being sacrificed for this covenant to be entered into? And there's more to the story. And we're given the explanation here in Hebrews. Hebrews 9 verse 18 says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. And for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the peoples, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood the tabernacle and the vessels of ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, blood, there is no remission of sin. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often as a high priest who enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, that he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And it is appointed for men once to die and after the judgment. And so Christ offered once to bear sins, the sins of many. To those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin and for salvation. So all of this is a picture ultimately of the sacrifice that would come through Christ, that would seal it all. The covenant utterly dependent upon God 
that would fulfill the blessings and the promises that would come through Abraham, the ones that he promised so long ago. That Christ himself was that final sacrifice that sealed the deal for us, sealed salvation for us, and that's what we put our hope in, that it's his accomplished work on the cross. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word once again, and we thank you for how so long ago you made it clear that you would accomplish all things for us, and Lord, how you spoke to Abram and you accomplished it. And it's hard for us to even think in terms of 400 years and these massive amounts of time and all that's gone by, and we grow impatient ourselves. We look forward to your coming. But Lord, help us to have the same faith as Abram, to trust that you will fulfill it as if it's already done. And even if we don't see the answers in our lifetime, that we would trust you wholly and without doubt, that we would trust you completely, knowing that you will one day return, you will fulfill all that you said you would, that one day through you justice will come, rewards will come, peace will come, and end to all the suffering and the things that we deal with in this world will come. So Lord, we trust you for that. Lord, increase our faith as the disciples prayed. I just ask your blessing on each person here as they go out from this place and as we fellowship together. In Jesus' name, amen.